It is so great to have Jim Papa on the show today. Jim runs Global Strategy Group's Washington, D.C. office, guiding operations and strategy for its public affairs, communications, and research practices. As partner at GSG, Jim advises CEOs and other C-suite executives as they grapple with public affairs challenges and opportunities across multiple industries. Prior to joining GSG, Jim was Special Assistant to the President for Legislative Affairs in the Obama White House from 2009 to 2012, where he played an important role in the enactment of the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, the Affordable Care Act, and many other landmark laws. Former Chicago mayor and current U.S. Ambassador to Japan, Rahm Emanuel, had this to say about Jim. Papa is someone you want in the trenches with you. So true. We're going to get into that what it's like in those trenches. Prior to serving in the White House, Jim earned a reputation as a top flight communications and political strategist on Capitol Hill. He served as a senior advisor to Democratic Caucus Chairman Rahm Emanuel, chief of staff to Rep. Rush Holt, who, as many listeners know, was one of only three scientists serving in Congress at that time. And Jim had many other senior roles as well. Jim is an experienced spokesman. He's a media trainer. He's prepared clients for broadcast appearances ranging from Meet the Press to 60 Minutes. He has guest lectured at Georgetown University, George Washington University, and American University. And Jim has a JD from Georgetown Law and an undergrad degree from Cornell University. And Jim, it's funny, I didn't realize that because that's my alma mater as well. Jim, I know. <laughs> welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. It's great to have this opportunity to talk with you again. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here and to be able to talk with you. And I know listeners are going to get a lot out of our discussion. Jim is a master communicator. He now advises CEOs, as I talked about in the introduction. And one of your focuses is on how to convey messages in compelling, memorable ways that resonate with listeners. And you've, you've honed this skill over many years in different environments, in Congress, at the White House, in the private sector. What are some of the common missteps that you've encountered as you've guided and counseled clients and members of Congress in effective communication? And this, I think, is really going to be helpful for listeners, how you did and how you do every day address and remedy some of those communication challenges. Yeah, of course, it depends a bit on the, the form and format of the communication. So giving a two-minute interview to a reporter that might be condensed to a sentence in an article that they write, or a five-minute meeting with a member of Congress, or a 15-minute speech, all of those are different forms of communications and therefore have different pitfalls. But I put a real emphasis on three things. One is connection. How are you connecting with the people that you're talking to? And a common misstep is mistaking a credential for a connection, right? Like I am the CEO of whatever. And so as a result, the, the implication there is, or unsaid is, you're going to respect me for my business acumen and my knowledge of this company. Or I went to MIT and I have a degree in X. And so now listener, you are likely to accept my view of the science on X, Y, or Z. A credential is not a connection. And so people tend to allocate their time, how, whether it's two minutes, five minutes, 15 minutes more, often on the wrong things. They under invest time in making that connection at the outset and they 
overinvest their time in how many strong arguments can I put into this? How many strong data points can I fit? And unfortunately, that connection is actually, in my view, the linchpin to whether anything else is going to be heard for what you want to communicate. So that's one. A second thing is people don't invest time in planning of what's going to be the most memorable thing. They take only one idea or one, you know, thing to take away from this speech. What will they remember? Is there a story you can share? What's the analogy that you can leave them with? What consequence might they be afraid of and therefore want to act the way you want them to act? All of these types of crutches are essential for actually having a durable message that somebody can act upon later. And then the last bit is just repetition. I know in the political field, people in particular get exhausted because the elected official might be like, why am I? Why do I have to use this phrase again? Why do I have to give this speech that is 80% the same again? But you can't, this is why L.L. Bean sends you a million catalogs. Like we all know you have to get a message over and over again to really remember it. So just be prepared to hone your arguments, hone your speech, hone your message. But also once you find one that works, doing it often. Right. So great. I want to highlight one of those elements, all three so important. And by leading with connection, obviously I'm a huge believer in connect before you communicate. And I love your credential is not your connection. As I mentioned in the intro, you were chief of staff to Congressman Rush Holt. And when you just mentioned this element, something that people need to keep in mind as far as information or data is not the only aspect of this connection or this community, I should say communication experience. And so I would, you had shared when we had a chance to talk offline, a lesson that Congressman Holt had frequently cited about the role of data and information as a persuasive lever in moving public policy forward, for example. I know if you would share it with listeners and provide some context, it would really resonate. Absolutely. I should note, working for a Congressman Holt was such a blessing for me personally. I spent four years as his chief of staff. I absolutely loved it. I thought I knew politics really well before I started working for him and in communications, et cetera. I had a background in political communications and I got my law degree while working for him. So working for a physicist was a bit out of left field for me. And I thought I was the one who would be bringing the communications and political smarts to him. And I gained so much from working for him. And one of the insights that really stuck with me, and Mark, I mentioned this to you beforehand, is the way he put it was, Congress is not built to weigh information. It is built to weigh interests. And I think that is true of all elected bodies. So wherever the scientific community is trying to shape decision-making from the local municipal level, all the way up to Congress, it's essential that we remember these bodies don't act as computers or there's not an accretion of information that then tips the scale. They weigh interests. So this was something that Rush would often talk with scientific community when people came in to collaborate with him. We've watched it play out with climate change over 20 years or more, where we know what the information tells us about climate change, about more carbon in the atmosphere, rising temperatures, rising sea levels, increased disease, ocean acidification. 
potentially a collapse of agriculture, right? These are all things that you can tell an elected official about, and you can do it in a really emphatic way using data, but they're not there just to hear all of those and then act on them. We need to also represent to them the interests. So all those things I ticked off, there are people who will live with those real world repercussions. So you want to find homeowners or property owners who have homes or businesses near the seashore. We need to you know, have city managers come in and talk about the impact on infrastructure. Farmers who, whose corn won't grow if there are 10 more days over 100 degrees in Iowa, right, in a few more years. Fishermen who can no longer find the huge stocks of fish that they once did on and on. So it is these groups of people, these interests that will really resonate with the decision makers operating in a system that's built to weigh those interests rather than information. Yeah. And if those farmers are from the congressional district or state, right, of your decision maker, which a lot of times scientists and others don't figure into, don't include in their calculations because the, the information is just so compelling. But the messengers that you're talking about, so Jim, you've had so many wonderful experiences across all these different sectors and at the highest levels. I wonder if you have some favorite stories to tell our listeners about examples of some of these communication principles that you've just talked about that worked really well. Sure. The number of times in my career in politics, and I spent, you know, a lot of years in politics and, and now I, I work in, in communications still, it's very rare that there are sort of moments of oratory that change the game. There, there was one that I can think of, and this goes back to 2009. I was working for President Obama and the major legislative objective at that time was the Affordable Care Act. And Mark, you were on the Hill at, the, at that time. Right. We were working together right. on it. That's right. For those who remember, it was a long time. So, so President Obama takes office in January of 2009. That bill's not signed into law until March of the following year. It was a very long legislative slog. And a, a key turning point was the summer of 2009. The House, which was supposed to vote on the bill first, did not take the vote before the August recess. So all, during that month, all the members, House and Senate, go back to their districts and they start holding town hall meetings. And what ensues is a raging political fire all across the country where all of these Democratic members who went out to talk about the Affordable Care Act and this vote that they might have when they get back were just yelled at time and time again. Now, it was a, an organized effort by the other side to deliver political heat to these members and try to get them to vote no. And it was effective. Members were communicating back to us, back at the White House, all throughout the month, just how much political pressure they were under. And as a result, the bill was on the ropes. The House bill had not been voted on, let alone the Senate bill, let alone a conference report. Like none of those things had happened yet. And so we determined in, in partnership with the Democratic leadership on Capitol Hill that a speech by President Obama, a joint address in the House chamber was going to be necessary if we were going to save this thing. 
And in September of 2009, the president gave that speech. The stakes were obviously very high. And he did a number of things with that speech that for people who are interested in good speech writing and good oratory, it's worth pulling up. Number one, he started by focusing on what it means to have poor health insurance or no health insurance for real people. He also put the larger project of healthcare into historical context and what it means for the country at this moment. We as a country have been fighting to get health insurance for everybody for decades, and now it's coming up on about a hundred years. Being able to say, this is our moment, we can do it this time. That is an inspirational part of the speech. But then the part that I love the most is he knows who his target audience is. His target audience is these House Democrats from frontline districts who've just gotten nothing but heat for a month. And again, they represent red districts. So these are not Democrats that just go along with the party very often. And likewise with some Democratic senators in red states. So he started discussing about two-thirds of the way through the speech about all the bipartisan parts of this bill. He talks about how McCain has authored the Patients' Bill of Rights with Ted Kennedy. That is part of this bill. He talks about how Orrin Hatch worked with Ted Kennedy to pass the Children's Health Insurance Program. He name-checks Chuck Grassley, Republican of Iowa, about the disability health coverage that uh, he worked with Ted Kennedy for children with disabilities. So the, the whole purpose of that, for those who know politics, is he's saying, hey, frontline swing district Democrats, I'm not just trying to get you to vote for a Democratic idea here. This is a bipartisan consensus that'll save costs, that'll deliver health insurance, that'll improve you know the quality of coverage for people who have it. That speech ended applause from all Democrats and many Republicans. And one of these members who came from a swing district came buzzing down the aisle to me, shook my hand, though I had nothing to do with, with the speech and said, count me in. It was that type of moment. Now, were there like bumps and twists and turns after that? Of course there were, but he had to pick up a heavy boulder and he had to move it someplace else. And he did it. And it breathed life back into that. A couple other quick ones. One having to do with also healthcare. It is well known or it's a part of the kind of political history that no Republicans voted for the ACA. Actually, that's not true. When it came through the House, there was a Republican congressman who voted for it. Joseph Gao of Louisiana, he represented New Orleans, voted yes. He was one of my members, okay? Meaning he was assigned to me in legislative affairs. And he w- was such an interesting, committed, thoughtful person who wanted to know the policy really well. And he wanted to get into the details so much that it exceeded my expertise. And Nancy Anderparl, who was the healthcare czar at the White House at the time, and I, made Congressman Gao our project. Anytime he wanted to talk, we set up a meeting. So Nancy Ann and I sat in Congressman Gao's office multiple times, late at nights, sometimes on weekends, where we would go through and answer all of his questions. We'd provide 
more context, et cetera. That communication style, it isn't a big speech, but it is authentic. It is repetitive. We were demonstrating to him that we cared what he thought. We were sort of proving that we were who we said we were along the way through our credibility. And I'll give you the last one. This was before President Obama was elected, 2007. The freshman class of Democrats that helped us take back the House had just been elected, okay? So Democrats are now in the majority for the first time in a long time. And the Iraq war is raging. And in the spring of 2007, there were going to be votes to defund the war. One of the new members was a congressman from outside of Philadelphia named Patrick Murphy, and he had served in the Iraq war. Young guy and a good speaker and an impassioned speaker, though he didn't have any meaningful public service before that. Because I was working for the House Democratic Caucus at the time, I attended every caucus meeting. And for those who don't know what a House Democratic Caucus meeting looks like, if you've ever been at a hotel in a kind of a medium-sized room where there are a few chairs up at the front and then it's classroom seating with an aisle in the middle, that's what a caucus meeting looks like. And it, there, it just, it, you know, all told there are 230 chairs. And the people up at the front are the House Democratic leadership. There's a lectern where the chairman runs the meeting from. And all the members are seated in the chairs and, and staff are standing along the outside of the room. That's the setup. There are microphones in the middle aisle and on the side aisles. And when it gets time to discuss something, anything, members line up at the, the microphones and they speak and they're facing the people up, who are seated up in the front, right? They're, so they're, they speak and they're facing the House Democratic leadership. This, as you might imagine, was a controversial topic and tensions were high. And there were some members who expressed an unwillingness to vote for defunding the war because they didn't want to be perceived as leaving our military behind. They wanted to be supportive of the military, even though they wanted that the military action to come to a close. And Patrick Murphy, he's a freshman, he, the, the rules and standards didn't quite apply to him. He goes up to the microphone and he says, Mr. Chair, if you wouldn't mind, I, I feel like I need to address my colleagues based on some of the things that I've heard here. He's the only member to do this. He then took the microphone and just spun around. That act changed the dynamic. And then he talked about, I served in Iraq, like my friends and, and colleagues are still there in some cases. He gave great remarks, but it was the act of turning around that for me in retrospect, it showed these things were like connection. He wasn't just there to present an idea verbally that others were to hear and then take and act upon. He was turning around and looking at his colleagues in the eye and saying, I've been there. This is important. You're not leaving them behind with a vote to defund the war. Those are all three things that came to mind. I wanted to share them with you. There are just probably so many more. That I'm, I'm sure. But, yeah. But each, each one is for different reasons. Yes. And they're amazing. Thanks for taking listeners inside those rooms and inside the chamber like that. So vivid. Jim, one of the things you alluded to with the Patrick Murphy story was the importance of the messenger. He had tremendous credibility and authority as a veteran to speak like that. And oftentimes we forget 
that the messenger actually matters a lot in addition to the message and, and your emphasis on connection before we even deliver the message so important. I want to ask you as we wrap up, in addition to some of these nuggets of communication wisdom you've shared, are there any books or, or videos or any other resources that you recommend for listeners who are interested in improving the way they communicate their research priorities or their policy issues, for example, and we'll include those in the show notes? Yeah. One book that has been very influential and that I really recommend to people is called The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion by Jonathan Haidt. It has really influenced my thinking and to give folks sort of a, a broad brush of it, the, the thesis is that we are all animals who make decisions really based on a core set of six values. Okay. And these values come in pairs. So one might be care harm, for instance. Okay. So if you can imagine if you were like a music producer and there's a soundboard in front of you and the dials go up and down, we all have these six dials and they're all for each of us set a little bit differently. So your taste buds are different from my taste buds, but we've all got them. If you accept that rough thesis of these values, and the process of how we make decisions is mostly what these values lead us to conclude. And then our inner lawyer helps rationalize us to what those values dictate. Okay. And Jonathan Haidt is a psychologist. He's not a political author. What I love about the book is there are many experiments that he walks through to explain and to show this is how we make decisions. So. You can get people to respond to certain questions that it shouldn't be what they conclude, but then the fact pattern that you present, but they want to reach that conclusion. And then their inner lawyer will substitute in the rationale. That's the danger of overemphasizing information. If, if we think that what everyone makes decisions upon is information, then all we do is supply information and we don't address these root values. And an example might be around immigration. Care harm is one of the principles, okay? And depending on how your dials are set, when someone is harmed, that might be really, really impactful for you. And Democrats generally index highly on this care harm principle, okay? So when during the Trump administration, it became known that there were kids in cages, you may remember that, there were, there's outrage across the country and Democrats looked at that and they turn to Republicans who didn't seem to be motivated by that. And they think, what is wrong? Kids in cages, how can that not just be enough? Why aren't we fixing this immediately? Another way to talk about immigration for a community, let's say you're talking with people who really want the border totally secured, don't want more immigration. When you hear them talk about it, their verbiage almost sounds like they're fighting infection, right? They'll, they'll say words like these immigrants, they are bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, violence, disease, right? It's almost as if it's a cellular border and they don't want anything to infect the cell. That should signal that one of the things that they probably score very high on is a, a value 
related to sanctity. And that it's not just religious sanctity. That's not what I'm referring to, but like the sanctity of the border. I, Mark, talking with you, I'd also say, okay, there are some real undertones of race there that we need to unpack. But if you want to move them, perhaps a way to talk to them is to tap into another value that's not care harm, but it's loyalty and say, hey, my great-grandfather came to this country from Italy. And when he got here, he had no money, worked in dress shops. And it's just part of the American story that I'm proud of. I'm proud that we're an immigrant country and tell me about your story. And then you are talking about immigration, but from a different point of view. And that may not even be the most resonant way to talk about immigration for yourself, because it may be that kids in cages, I find so appalling that I wonder why I'm not driving down to the border right now to address it. But if the goal is persuasion, we have to understand what is going on in their minds and craft a message and an approach that can help open their mind to our information. Because if we're barking up the wrong tree, they are going to sit there and think like we're all wet, like that, that we are somehow missing something. I hope I've done Jonathan Haidt a little bit of a favor. I hope I've captured it as well as I can, because it's such a great book. I highly recommend it. If you do read it, Mark, I'd love to talk with you about it. Summer reading list. It's been added for sure. I'm going to put that emotion right after we finish our conversation, Jim. And that information, your stories, your specifics, the principles you're bringing forward, all just so valuable for listeners. And I really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to share these unique experiences that almost nobody in America has. So thanks for bringing that and, and your message will be getting out there across not to the US, but other places as well. Look, I'm happy to do it. I'm, I'm honored that you asked me and I'm, I'm really glad to be talking with you. You mentioned my background and at the top, you read some of it, but you and I walk some of the same paths up on Capitol Hill. And I have a podcast called Staffer and it is my ode to people who work in public service at any level, federal, state, local, because I think it's so important to the national project that we are all a part of. And I think it also is amazing training for doing all sorts of different things. So you've been kind enough to interview me. I'd like to turn the tables and ask some questions of you. I, I don't have a PhD. You don't have a PhD, right. but we do have experience working with scientists in a policy environment. So can you talk about your work today and what you try to bring to that community as it tries to advance legislative objectives. Sure. Absolutely, Jim. Thanks for that. And Staffer is a wonderful podcast. We'll be linking to that in the show notes for When Science Speaks. A lot of people would ask me, why is a former Senate chief of staff hosting a science podcast? And they didn't even know my last science class was AP Bio at Framingham North High School. <laughs> the only science I took in college was, uh, I took astronomy. The only engineering or math I took, I think, was engineering myself out of the math requirement at Cornell. And so, Jim, you can relate to that. 
as far as the Cornell campus and so forth. I can tell you that when I was on the Hill, I worked very closely with scientists and engineers who were fellows from the American Association for the Advancement of Science, for AAAS, which has a wonderful fellowship program. The scientific societies that feed into that as well are so valuable to all of us. And we took very seriously, as I know Congressman Holt's office did as well, the opportunity to bring on scientists and engineers who are going to spend a year really learning the legislative process. And we had the wonderful opportunity to bring these folks on from physicists. We had dentists, we had social scientists, we had surgeons who are all taking a year off and delving into the policy process. So during my almost 20 years on the Hill, I did a lot of mentoring of those folks and they brought a lot to the table. Of course, just like anyone learning any kind of new job, in the beginning, they're completely lost. And as time would go on, they would get really good at things similar to what you're describing, Jim, many of the same kind of things, how to communicate an issue effectively, how to do it quickly, how to focus on the most important elements of it. When you're used to writing a journal article or running experiments or presentations that have so many slides and graphs that your eyes begin to water, that's just the way you're used to doing business. But on the Hill, it's nothing like that. There's a whole other language out there that you need to learn and a way of doing this. So I did a lot of mentoring with scientists and engineers years during my time in the Hill, which I very much valued in the working with them. This was with Congressman Ed Markey and then Senator Ed Markey after he was elected to the U.S. Senate. And when I left the Hill in 2015, I thought, how can I continue to make an impact on some of these issues that I really care about? And it was around the time when we were hearing things like there were more people at Trump's inauguration than there were at Obama's. And science doesn't matter. It's really driven by other factors, which are political in nature, had nothing to do with actually facts or data and evidence. And I was really appalled on a couple of levels. One was, as you are, I felt I was a serious policy professional. That's not the way policy should be done in our country. That's not the way certainly we did it. Everything had to be grounded in facts. And now we were seeing a complete 180 uh, with the information that was the lies that were coming directly from the White House and the press secretary's podium and so forth. So my focus initially was, how do we combat that? How do we actually debunk this information? Can we short circuit these lies? And then how do you go about doing that? And a turning point for me, as far as my work with scientists, was going to the 2018 AAAS conference in Austin, Texas. And I had an opportunity to speak there. And my topic was something like, fake news and alternative facts, how to stand up for science when data aren't enough. And I was at that point really geeked out on all these questions about can we persuade, how to persuade and bring some of these strands of the political world as a political campaign uh, as well to the enterprise. And I was just shocked that room was so packed that they had to bring in more chairs and then people were sitting on the floor and standing up along the wall. And, and I led this discussion on this topic and a reporter from Science Magazine was there 
because AAAS actually owns Science Magazine for those who are unfamiliar. And he said, I'm going to write an article about this. So he wrote a great piece about that. And then I ended up doing a keynote on how to communicate your research effectively for UNC Chapel Hill as a result of meeting the director of research communications during the conference. And from there, I just continued to really do what I'm doing now, which is working with scientists at research universities, in industry, in nonprofits, scientific societies, helping them translate the value, the complicated topics sometimes into memorable, engaging communications. So important. And you are just the perfect person to be doing this work. It's something that we just talked about in terms of connection, that the mis and disinformation threat, which is so real and quite dire in our country today, that connection, that's the linchpin. So when we're talking about connecting, it's like what we are trying to persuade is why should you be listened to or trusted? And I'll, I'll give you an example from an article I read recently. The author said, I have no reason to believe that anyone named John Adams actually lived, except that I trust the books that I've read it in. And I trust the teachers who told me about John Adams. I've never seen an Adam, but I trust the resources that tell me that atoms exist. If you can break what people trust, break their trust in science, break their trust in journalism, break their trust in elected leaders, and substitute that for something, oh, I don't know, an anonymous uh, social media presence that spits out conspiracy theories with the letter Q, well, you can get people to believe anything. Once you change that, it's terrifying. <laughs> and that's why we say connection is so important because it's essentially trust. But I, I do have a follow-up question for you. Sure. You've been a staffer. You've mentored staffers. What makes a good staffer? <laughs> and for, so for all these folks who I've, might engage with congressional staff or other policy staff or aspire to be one, what makes them good? Echoing what you said, it really was a blessing to be able to work on the Hill, work with Ed Markey and such a talented staff that he had. Some of the attributes I would point to is ask questions, ask questions of people you meet, adopt a curious mindset. If somebody tells you something, well, why is that? Why do you think that? And really engage in all oh, you're meeting people from all over the world all the time. They're coming into your office or asking you for meetings. You're discussing things with them. Really engage and, and try to adopt generally a curious mindset in the way you approach things. The other is, you know, the ability to be comfortable making the best decisions you can with the information that you have at the time. This is something that I found scientists often have trouble with because sciences and enterprise is always evolving and there might be a new discovery tomorrow and maybe i shouldn't be so definitive in saying xyz right now because someone may a colleague may find that it's not true or get more information later unfortunately the hypersonic speed at which the process works it's funny because congress people say it's so slow it's and it's created the system is created to be slow but decisions that are at a smaller level really need to be made very quickly and so you just need to be comfortable with being able to go out there and, and get the best information that you can and make recommendations based on that good information. And it really feeds to the third thing I'll just mention is develop a network of experts that you can call on very quickly. 
no one can be an expert in all of these different areas on the Hill. It's just not possible. There's no way you can know so much information. You usually need to be a generalist and be able to do that. But when you need an answer quickly on a very specific topic, it's so important that you have someone you can email, pick up the phone, ask the boss is about to go on the floor, make a statement, or we got a press conference coming up. Could you appear? Could you take a look at this before it goes out? Just to make sure from a real expert standpoint that everything is lined up and everything is accurate. And then I would say high level, oftentimes people work on the Hill when they're relatively young in their 20s. And to get that much authority and that much responsibility at a young age is one of the reasons that people love working on the Hill, because they're involved in high impact things at a relatively young age. Don't let it go to your head. Yeah, I'm sure you've seen this syndrome, Jim. The member is the only one with a voting card. That person is the boss. Everything you do is in that person's name, literally. And so you're not the story. Staffers who believe that they are the story quickly become former staffers. So that's the last kind of maybe inside baseball, not as tactical, but more thematic that I would recommend people keep in mind. Everything you said is so important, <laughs> but the ethic of being a staffer, not only just how to do it well, but there is an ethic and ethos about being a staffer that is essential. And if we lose it, and it seems to be fraying in some ways, along with it can go key parts of the democratic enterprise. So let me, let me ask you this. I was a huge admirer uh, and still am of, of now Senator Markey, but while he was in the house, I got, you know, to see him up close. Your work with him was really just so impressive. Can you share a little bit with us about behind the scenes, some things that you worked on and some stories that you find illustrative or that you, you draw upon today? Sure. One thing that I learned directly from Ed and David Moulton, who was a chief of staff, Jeff Duncan, who also was chief of staff and legislative director at different times, the ability really to zero in on the important, really to zero in and distill, that was something that we all had to do. And the more you do it, the better you get at it. And then it becomes part of your DNA. And that's just the way you reflexively think. Another thing I would say, I had this joke sometimes I would say to people, they'd say, well, how long are you working for it? And I'd say, right now it's 15 years or 12 years or 10 years or seven years. And actually we have a term for that level of tenure in the office, which is rookie, <laughs> because, which of course we didn't, but I had always was a laugh line. So I always used it because people wonder, well, how does he keep staff for so long? And it, it's because he treats staff with a lot of respect and thinks about what they need and is very quick to give praise publicly to staff members when they do a good job. And people need that, particularly when you might be working crazy hours, maybe you could get a higher paycheck somewhere else, but to have your boss in such a visible way, whether it's a U.S. Senator or whoever on the staff say, did a great job today and do that publicly, it could energize people for, for weeks right? Change your whole attitude about the job. So that was really important. One of my favorite stories was the, the Communications and Video Accessibility Act, which was a, an effort that Ed led with Chairman Waxman and others, but Ed was really point on this and Senator Mark Pryor in the Senate 
was as well. And basically what it did was update the Americans with Disabilities Act for the internet age, we called it. And it was updating a section of the Communications Act that had to do with the ability of folks who were blind or folks who were deaf to use iPhones, to be able to navigate through Netflix, to be able to get through YouTube and, and, and also emergency alerts, which were being broadcast in ways that were so different when the act that's original language or the latest language in the act was written. And so the idea was we were 20 years out, George H.W. Bush had signed the Americans with Disabilities Act in 1990. It was a bipartisan bill. And we're now, we're 20 years out after that. It was 2010. And that whole process was very laborious at the beginning. There were some real strong views on all sides. And ultimately, we were able to get it done. And the truth is that engineers played a huge role in getting that done because it enabled everyone to say, again, this is building on what you were saying too, Jim, about values. Everyone agreed on the universal value that humans, all humans, regardless of their situation, should be able to enjoy entertainment the same way, participate in civic life the same way. They shouldn't be stopped by some disability that they may have in one area of their life. And that was when I'm talking about physical barriers, that was really the ethos behind the Americans with Disabilities Act. And now we're talking about the wireless world. And we had taken care of those physical barriers for the most part. And we were looking for on-ramps to the internet. We would say, well, it's one of the things that we would talk about. And so engineers were able to translate the everyone agreeing on this higher level valence principle of everyone should have equal access. But then the question is how? And there was a lot of disagreement on that. But when we turned it, we got the engineers really involved and the engineers looked at it and said, wow, this is a really cool engineering. Let's work on this, let's wrestle it to the ground. And they were able to do it in a way that made everybody happy, that was able to fulfill this universal value people agreed on. And it ended up with this signing ceremony at the White House in the East Room with Stevie Wonder. and that I was fortunate to attend. And then after the signing ceremony, no one who had blood, sweat, and tears, and this, I'm sure you were in so many of these rooms too, Jim, it's like, you just don't want to leave. It took so much to get there and you got it done. And you're, the, the core group is still there and just talking and soaking it up. And all of a sudden, Stevie Wonder was still there. Everyone else had left the Marine guards ushering us to the exits, and but no one wants to leave. And Somebody says to, to Stevie Wonder, he ends up deciding there's a piano right where we're standing in the foyer. Oh. And he ends up playing a song that he had been working on the piano as we're like around the piano. It sounded like it was almost like the sound of music, like the Van Trap family around the piano. <laughs> and he, it's Stevie Wonder. And I'm like, I can't believe I'm here in the White House, had this bill signing. Stevie Wonder is playing a song he is working on right now. And we've just done something that we felt was so important for everyone in America. That was a highlight of my time on the Hill. Oh, I love it. Those moments. And one of the reasons I love, I loved being a staffer and I love staffer stories is because <clears throat> you get to intersect with history sometimes in impactful ways, in memorable ways. And the when you take a step back, you say, oh, wow, like in my case, I 
I'm the son of two teachers. I grew up in upstate New York. And yet here I've been able to have a, a sled ride down the mountain that has delivered me to all sorts of, you know, neat moments. And that is something you'll tell your grandchildren about, Mark, right? Like you were part of something that is affecting people's lives all over the country today. And it had this cool thing at the end, but that impact is so sustaining and important. Yeah. And I, I really think it's the essence, like you were describing, of America and how we're different from other places. And this is something that I really want us to be able to continue. Like you were saying, you didn't come from a political background. I didn't come from a political background at all. My dad worked for Polaroid for about 35 years. And my mom stayed at home for a long time before she went out to teach. It wasn't like because we were born at a certain station that we weren't going to be able to move around. And that's just really what still fires me up about our country. This is going to be my last question for you. We have talked about the promise and optimism and excitement of being a staffer. We've also talked a little bit about some of the worries we have about the future and the sort of separation of governance from information. I look at the January 6th in insurrection and what led to it, the violence that occurred that day, and sadly, the discussion that has occurred after it now and, and how it's being re-described, misdescribed. What do you think are some of the root problems, the root causes of the problems that we face today? And what do you think gets us out of some of those problems so that we can be more optimistic about our, our ability to self-govern over the next 100 years? Yeah, well, that's a great question. I have a couple of tactical ideas and more of a, a high level you know, idea. One is the, the thing that we've been talking a lot about during our discussion here, which is values and connection. And I think we've stopped trying to connect in many ways with those who disagree with us in one way or another, but we, yet we still have so much of our fundamental being, regardless of where we are in the world or what political party, which is the same. I spend a, a fair amount of time in the hospital with my young son, who, who is uh, now doing very well, but he had a, a few years there where he was, had a few surgeries. And I was always struck by the other parents in the children's ward at the hospital, because we could just look at each other and nod. Yeah, I understand exactly what you're going through and your worries and your hopes. And being able to strike up conversations with these people, regardless of any, it didn't matter what, what else they had going on, what they did for a job, all these other sort of superficial things melted away. So I always in, would encourage people to try to see the person that you are talking to and get to that. And a lot of it has to do with asking questions. And it's not too long before you can hit upon things that you have in common. And we're wired to be more comfortable with that. And more, the things you have in common can be so, what seem trivial, but they make a real difference. Don't give up when it comes to interacting and connecting and engaging with other people. Ask questions, be curious. You're going to find that you have a lot more in common than you think. And that's the connection aspect that enables all the other things. I'm glad that we've really highlighted that because a lot of folks forget that. And I think political people know that instinctively and use that and have seen it work. I'd say tactically, <laughs> this is funny because when I first started working on the Hill, the first time, the first tour was from 1990 
1993 to 1996. And we would get mail about getting rid of the Electoral College. It's a relic. It's like the appendix of our democracy. It's useless now. And we would respond, but I never really took it seriously. Then after the 2016 election, sometime in 2017, 2018, I saw the documentary about Facebook and I saw how easy it is to micro-target and how you can, using misinformation, you can really uh, convince, if you convince just a f- enough people in a handful of congressional districts across the country, you can swing a state and then tip the balance in a presidential election. And I thought that the reasons for the Electoral College and having that still as part of our democracy had passed and that technology had enabled it to be gamed. And we've now seen not just how it could be gained, but how it actually was gamed to what I would say would be the detriment of our democracy. So I think from a tactical standpoint, I would say we should get rid of the Electoral College, of course, which would require a a constitutional amendment. And that's not something that's easy, but I think it's very important that we do that. The third one is a smaller item that I think would be eminently doable, but um, I suffer from this myself. And I think about geography. When my parents, you're the son of two teachers. My parents were growing up, geography, meaning like U.S. geography, know all the capitals, know where the states are, know a little bit about them. That was part of civics, you know, how to be a citizen. And by the time I was going through, and we're around the same age, we never had geography. And I always say to my kids, it's such a huge blind spot for me. My geography is atrocious. Yes, the New England area, the East Coast, (laughs) the parts of the West Coast, but even the mindset of that stuff in between isn't important. I don't know about it. I don't pay attention to it. I never learned about it. I really think that we should bring back geography. Now we have, oh, I have Google Maps. I don't need that. But Google Maps doesn't tell you anything with respect to the issues we're talking about now. It's to be able to develop these connections and feel connected to and be curious about people who are not living near you, right? You need to have a better frame of reference. And I think just bringing back geography and some of this civics lesson, maybe some of it is taught, but not to the degree that it was, but I'd say even as a start, can we all agree We should be teaching geography, where our fellow citizens live, what focus is in those areas, the industries, the challenges. I think that would go a long way. It'd be a relatively small thing to do. I love that suggestion. And I count me in. I'm on board with it. Mark, you've been kind enough to allow me to ask you questions on your podcast. I can't wait to to put this in the feed on Staffer as well. It's really been an honor to, to be a part of your podcast. And thank you. Uh, I really appreciate it. Jim, right back at you. We have a mutual admiration society here. How I feel about you and your skills. And it's funny, I'm just thinking about this as we're talking. One of the themes that we came out of the Obama White House was no drama Obama. And I always felt with you, it was the same kind of feeling. It was steady. It was incredibly effective, but with no wasted motion. And so you got done exactly what you needed to get done without any of the superfluous stuff that people often in politics get caught up with. 
And uh, it was a pleasure working with you. And it's just been wonderful to reconnect and be able to have this conversation. Likewise, thank you for all those kind words. And the, as you said, the feeling is very much mutual. So thank you. Uh, I'm going to say listeners, thank you for being along on this episode of When Science Speaks. I hope you'll be back next time for the next episode of When Science Speaks.